1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
0: Welcome back to uh, Amplifying, the second hour. Our guest is Professor David Solomon, and he has written a book titled Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin succeeded how sin influenced the west from the middle ages to the modern area we were talking about uh, pride and lust as uh, two of the sins we and uh, i had asked uh, professor a little bit about uh, the, the the modern age about uh, today and he wanted to tell a story about uh, uh, that it demonstrates uh, makes a a whole lot of uh, insight, gives us a lot of insight about uh, former President Jimmy Carter that those of us who are a little older will remember.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you, you might remember in 1975, before he was president, uh, during the campaign, he was interviewed by Playboy magazine, and he mentioned at one point during the interview that he had he had, quote-unquote, lusted in his heart. And uh, for some people, they just they went bananas to that and said, what does that mean? Does it mean he doesn't love his wife? Does it mean that he is he has actually cheated on her, uh, you know, been with other women? Um, and Carter himself claimed actually that his poll numbers uh, dipped substantially after that that interview was was published. And he he uh, it to, to that one statement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we have such a a, a fear of of that word i think of lust
0: and you you write that the the idea that one could lust emotionally and not physically of course developed from modern notions of psychology and the conceptualization that humans can have an inner life a private self that is quite different from their outer life their public self so we've begun to look at that differently too haven't we
1: well, also the distinction between intention and action. Um, you know, I, I can I can intend to do something, or I can have an idea of doing something, but in, in the modern world, uh, in the modern secular world, unless I act upon that, um, there, there really isn't a problem. Now, Father, you can help me with this, but in the context of, of Catholic dogma, intention is just as as, as heinous as action when it comes to sinful behavior, is, is it not? Yes, yes. So, you know, that, that's, that's a problem for the, the, the secular world because it doesn't operate that way. Um, you know, no one's going to take me to court because I thought about beating up my neighbor. Um, they're only going to take me to court if I actually beat up my neighbor. Um, so the, 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 that sense of an inner life which psychology has given us is uh, both a good and a bad thing.
0: Um, the final thought that I would pull from your book— Uh, about lust, as you write, as a result of these increased lustful behaviors, and um, you uh, explain a lot about what's happening today, as a result of these increased lustful behaviors, and to some degree, thoughts, we are becoming less human. In what sense are we becoming less human?
1: Well, again, uh, so much of this has to do with um, what in fact makes us human, um, you know, and, and, and as I say there in, in the next uh, paragraph from where you were just reading, um, you know, what sin does in general terms is it makes one less human. Um, lustful intentions and lustful actions can both result in shame and disgust. Um, certainly, pornography does objectify women, and lustful behavior is often demeaning. But perhaps of even more significance is the lasting effects on the individual's sense of self. Lustful intentions are inwardly detrimental, while lustful actions are detrimental to all. Thus, lust leads us down the primrose path to many other social troubles, psychological problems, and even physical injuries.
0: Talking about anger now, from where does the modern West get its notion of anger
1: that's a, that's a that's an excellent question. Um, you know, we see that there is there's writing about anger all the way back to Aristotle and 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 even the pre-Socratics and the philosophers. Um, it's probably Seneca, the Roman philosopher, who had the most to say about anger in a pre-Judeo-Christian context. But you know, it, it, all we have to do is look at. Um, is look at what goes on in our, in our culture today. Um, it, it, for those of your listeners who've seen the, the 2015 Disney movie Inside Out, the Pixar movie, um, which was an animated film that supposedly dealt into the mind of a young girl, revealed her five personified emotions, it was the comedian Lewis Black who was anger. Um, and, you know, watching and listening to anger can be really cathartic for us. Um, especially when the material is political or social, um, it, it, it's oftentimes a reaction to what we see around us. Um, and again, not a bad thing in and of itself. Bad when it is when, when it is uh, it presents itself in excess. Um, of course, you know we see it through the through the Old Testament. Um, we see it in one of the earliest stories in the Old Testament in Cain and Abel. Uh, We see it in the ways in which God's wrath, Yahweh's wrath in the Old Testament, is often felt by the Israelites. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, we have a kind of a shift. Um, Even Paul in in Ephesians says, be angry, but do not sin. So it was was okay to be angry. Again, it's the, the excess anger which is the problem.
0: What about Jesus? Um, And you write about it in your book. Um, Didn't he become angry at times?
1: He did. Um, You know, most notably, it's it's the the scene with the money changers where he overturns the tables in Mark. Um, But the the gospel writer doesn't even really make Jesus's anger explicitly clear there. Um, In in John's account, Jesus's anger is interpreted as zeal. Um, and, you know, we, we know that zeal is, is defined as something that's more than anger. It's kind of a red-hot passion. Um, the, the Synoptic Gospels basically describe an incident of well-managed outrage by Jesus, not anger in the traditional sense. Um, it's really in, in, in Paul, then, that we start to get some of the the, the further um, exegesis of, of, of those passages. But it. it it remains fairly unclear, and it, it, it's interesting because um, I, you know I would ask you, Father, I mean how do you deal with 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 interpreting those scenes of Jesus being angry with your parishioners?
0: Well, I think that you explained it uh, in in your book that uh, anger presents uh, quite differently in the New Testament where Jesus is only explicitly angry in one verse after critics right. accuse him of healing on the sabbath he looked around them with with anger and uh, the one of the explanations is that jesus's anger here is to set things right it had a constructive purpose and you continue on discussions of divine anger or wrath are confined to the pauline epistles in the book of revelation the fact that should not come as a surprise given the merciful stories recounted in the Gospels compared. And so uh as you just explained, the Gospel writer does not make Jesus' anger explicitly clear and that in John's right. Gospel, uh John's anger is interpreted as zeal, uh not anger in the traditional sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it it it's it's uh it, it, it's a thorny topic. Um, certainly, anger, you know, is is more clear as a human emotion in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, when I teach my my Bible as literature course, um, you know, one of the things that I have to give my students permission to do is to, to dislike Yahweh as a as a character in the stories. Um, we're looking at the Bible as literature in that course, and not as 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 a religious. Uh, document. And it, it really, I mean, if you look at the character, the character is often angry, often uh, obsessed with retribution and punishment. And of course, that's the big distinction between the Old and New Testament conceptions of, of God, the Old Testament being about discipline and the New Testament being more about mercy.
0: And of course, the, the question is, is there such a thing as justifiable anger? Are there circumstances in which what we call anger is really a call to holiness, uh, is is a call to peace and uh, right. really, really not intended to be anything more than that? And you write uh, controlled anger wins Super Bowls. Cha- chaotic anger results in expulsion and suspension from the sport. So uh, kind of a difference there. It doesn't apply directly in the same way but there, there, there is a there is meaning there. Just to move on, so hopefully we can touch on each of them, at least to some sure. degree, uh, gluttony. Um, what is, you begin by asking, is it a moral, biological, psychological, or no issue at all? And you, talk, you write about how life has changed and that in today's popular culture in America, gluttony is associated with overeating and obesity. It's no longer a sin; it's a sign of weakness, and a target of weakness, and a target of comedians and ridicules. And and I didn't I, I heard this for the first time from you. The church fathers argue that gluttony could be a gateway to the sin of lust. So I thought yeah. about it. I I hadn't thought about that previously.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about, I mean, they're both they're both sins of incontinence of a lack of control over one's bodily functions, gluttony over overeating in in general, although it really can refer to any kind of excess when it comes to uh, food, which as I mentioned in in the book can also be interpreted as as eating disorders on the other end of the spectrum and and disorders like anorexia and bulimia could be looked at as, as sinful in that context. Um, but there's there, there's something to be sure about the fact that the the church fathers and and the early uh, writers certainly saw gluttony. Well, really, they they saw each of the sins as as a gateway to lust and pride. Um, those were the the two that they were most fearful of.
0: And so, uh, and you raise the question uh, in your book, uh, the seven deadly sins that um, there is a there is a point at which even fasting could be considered sinful if it's bringing harm to you right in some way right.
1: well fa- yeah fasting uh, to be sure i mean you know it, it's interesting that in a lot of the the various religious traditions around the world fasting is an important activity at some point on the calendar it's a, a, a way of of Expressing um, devotion, atonement, and uh, so whether we're talking about on, on Yom Kippur for Jews fasting for the day, or whether we're talking about Catholics who uh, you know don't eat meat on Fridays during Lent, um, or we're talking about Muslims who in the the the, the month of Ramadan fast during the day, um, there is an importance to that the idea, but there is also, again, a problem with that kind of activity being done in excess, um, and that is when it becomes problematic. Um, and I think that, that in many ways, and you find this in, the, in some of the Church Fathers, the idea that fasting is fine, but but fasting to excess is, is, is an affront to God. Um, and so I'm thinking about some of the activities of some of the 14th century mystics. I'm thinking about folks like Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp mm-hmm. um, who engaged in fasting behavior and um, largely that the men around them uh, felt that that was blasphemous in some ways, um, that the, they shouldn't be doing that that kind of excessive fasting.
0: Right. And so you suggest that uh, perhaps it's easier to wrap our minds around the concept of gluttony in the 21st century. If we move away from focusing only on food, you suggest that gluttony today can take um, different forms. Americans yeah. have increasingly, you write, and quickly become gluttons of another commodity. And here it is, information. So yeah. so a lot of people are writing <laughs> about about this today.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we just – we live in a world where we are constantly being fed unfiltered information. Um, it is a, a constant uh, – you know, the kids talk about something they call FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Um, and it's the reason why they seem so glued to their cell phones. Um, it, 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 it's just – it's a real problem. And, and I'm as guilty of, of it as anybody um, I mean, the first thing I do when I turn the TV on is is, is turn on CNN,
0: mm-hmm. see
1: what's going on. Um, you know, it's that fear that I'm going to miss out on something. Um, and I am as much a news junkie as, as anybody. I'm, I still get the, the, the paper New York Times delivered to my driveway every morning
0: okay.
1: um, after all these years <laughs> um, and a devoted reader um, of, of a variety of, of daily news and, and weekly periodicals. So I, 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 but there is a danger to that. And again, it's that, that not giving us the chance to reflect and think. Right. Our minds are constantly being engaged with information that is coming in. There's no time to digest any of that.
0: And one of the arguments is that uh, technology is designed to addict, that it encourages impulsivity and thus can lead to erratic, violent, and often irrational behavior. And you have this quote, or you've drawn from journalist Brandon Baker who offers six reasons why people binge watch. One, they seek an improved viewing experience. Two, they seek a sense of completion. Three, they seek cultural inclusion and fear being left out of conversation regarding pop culture. Four, they succumb to convenience. Five, they fear left behind and want to catch up. And six, they desire relaxation and nostalgia. And you point out that it's also interesting that with with more shows uh, produced by Netflix and Amazon, screenwriters have begun to construct narrative in order to feed the viewer's desire to binge.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that if you're watching a show on Netflix, and it will automatically move from one episode to the next, even allowing you to skip the opening credits um, so that you can just keep going and going. Um, you know, binge-watching certainly can, can also be a, a kind of a stress reliever, um, but it also has a, a kind of a, a negative side to it. If you think about the reaction that people have to binge eating when you, you crash – Um, you also crash from binge-watching TV. And, uh, you know, in in a a study that was published in 2017, um, 80% of young adults identified themselves as binge-watchers. That's just really kind of frightening.
0: Right. Psychologists, you point out, call it situational depression. When we substitute TV for human relations, we disconnect from human nature— and substitute for the virtual, more than 80% of young adults themselves are binge walkers. So we're going to, take, we're going to be taking our next break. When we come back, let's uh, try to say a little bit about avarice, Envy and uh, Sloth as we speak with Professor David Solomon about his book, The Seven Deadly Sins. Welcome back to uh, Amplify. Final segment of our program. Um, goes so fast sometimes. Um, just about 20 minutes to the top of the hour. Our guest is Professor David Solomon. Um, we've been talking about his book, The Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Era. And that, that tells you how he's approached it. What were they thinking then and why and how has perhaps has it morphed Today, there's something of the same is always still there, but uh, how we understand that concept of sin and what is sin. How do we look at sin itself uh, today and what's what's truly deadly about them? Um, We're going to talk about greed now uh, and uh, uh, Professor, you have this this quote from Albert Einstein, three great forces rule the world. Stupidity, fear, and greed. Maybe I should have had my, told you my Charlie Brown story back cartoon. Now, stupidity, fear, and and greed. Um, You point out that it's one of the oldest sins to be delineated, and is one of the very few to be explicitly named in the Bible. Why is that?
1: Yeah, it, it, and, and it's particularly appropriate for today to talk about. Um, you know, I, I was just I was just looking at, at when we were on our break there. I was, as a news junkie, checking the CNN website, and the headline is, Thousands of Cars Line Up for Food Bank in Texas. Um, you know, in, in the height of, of COVID and the way that people are having to deal with this from an economic perspective and the fact that so many folks... Um, well, not that many I mean the, the, the reputed 1% um, have so much and that there are so many folks who have so little. Um, and so this sense that that greed um, going back to the 1980s and, and and the movie Wall Street where Gordon gecko says greed nice. is good um, I, I, I disagree. Um, I don't think it's good. Um, I think that if we have, excess of money for whatever reason, if we are fortunate enough to have a high-paying job or fortunate enough to inherit money or even win the lottery, um, it sort of behooves us not to use some of that money to better humanity and take care of our, of our fellow man and the world around us. Um, and I think that the, the, the earliest writers of this, and even in the Bible text, um, it's clear that, that avarice greed is uh, really, the, as the Bible says, the root of all evil.
0: And greed, you point out, is not just about money or material goods. Uh, there are other things that are involved.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can be greedy about, about the way that you treat uh, the planet, for example. Um, we've been rather greedy about using up our natural resources, um, which now is, is bringing us to a, a crisis point. Um, it's really interesting. I I I bought a new car two weeks ago, um, and it shuts itself off at traffic lights. Um, the, the engine shuts off while I'm waiting for the light to turn green, and I knew it did this. Um, I it was it was uh, it was told to me when I when I was purchasing the car, but I hadn't really experienced it. And it's it, it, it's awkward feeling. It feels like the, the car is stalling out, and so I called the dealer. And I said, is, is this normal? Is this the way it's supposed to be? And he said, yeah. And I said, so is it really saving me money on gas? And he said, well, it's not that. It's more about reducing emissions. Yes. And I thought that was a really interesting distinction um, between, you know, looking at the ways in which we treat the world and we treat the planet versus how it's hitting me and my, my wallet. Um, and so we've, we finally started in the last two decades, really. To start to become more aware of our effects on depleting the world's resources and being greedy about that, and understanding that if we don't uh, pull back and 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 stop, we're not going to have a world left to, to to be greedy about.
0: I'm going to uh, just uh, tempt people a little bit here, and that's sinful, I guess, too. <laughs> that, that I, I I find fascinating. Uh, the, about how our founders felt about greed as evidenced by the $1 bill. We don't have time to talk yeah. about that tonight, but um, it, it's something they'll want to read when they when they get a copy of the book uh, to go to that. But let's talk a little bit now, first of all, about, about envy, which you indicate is the result of perceived injustice and that the key to understanding envy is as to see it as a feeling of injustice.
1: Yeah, and, and, and you know, m- maybe the, 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 the best example of that is the one that I opened that chapter with, which is a personal story, and if you don't mind, I'll read the paragraph. Please. Um, when, I, when I was six years old in a fit of envy for what I perceived as favorable attention, giving my younger three-year-old brother, I hit him in the head with a block. Uh, not my finest <laughs> right. moment. I took one of our building blocks, a rather heavy, pale, oblong piece of wood, and hit him across the forehead, causing a gaping wound that began bleeding over the front of his face. I believe he required six stitches. Until we were both well into our 30s, our mother still believed the story that, quote, the block fell off the shelf and hit him in the head. I received no punishment. And so it is about perceived injustice. I mean, my perception there was that my brother was receiving some kind of favorable attention from my parents, um, not unlike the way that Cain uh, feels about Abel in the Genesis story and, as a result, uh, feels a, a need to to lash out and be uh, engaged in that kind of envious behavior. Um, but that also, you know, it, it also gets into a problem for us today because we think about, well, everybody should be equal, so we really shouldn't be envious of each other. Um, the, the, our, our, our own founding document says all men are created equal. Um, it doesn't seem that way. Um, certainly when you, when you take a walk on the streets in any, any large city, including Pittsburgh, I imagine, um, you see the inequity, uh, the financial inequity amongst people. Um, and so really what, what I encourage in the book is more a sense of equity, which implies fairness, rather than equality. Um, so it isn't a matter that everyone should have the same things. Mm-hmm. It isn't a matter that everyone should have um, access to the same things. That's different. So equity implies fairness, where equality instead has us treat everyone the same without any consideration for needs, ability, or merit. And that's, that's, that, I think, is a
0: problem. And you suggest that the key to understanding envy is to see it as a feeling of injustice.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and to, and to be able to, to reflect on that. Then, um, I mean, you know, in, in a, a the sort of groundbreaking work on on justice by John Rawls, he he argues that envy is not a moral feeling. Um, instead, he argues that it is something that rational individuals really aren't subject to. Um, envy, he says, is the result of, as you said, perceived injustice. Um, and we are sort of wrought worldwide with what Rawls calls benign envy. Um, it's there's no ill will intended. Um, it's not that I envy somebody, their happy marriage. So I want their marriage to, to end. It's more that I admire their marriage. And so benign envy only becomes kind of problematic again when it, as I say in the book, metastasizes and and sort of becomes something that, that grows out of control.
0: And you also write envy is perhaps the most reviled of the seven deadly sins since it is rooted in several of the other six Envy is a part of pride, part lust, part greed, and perhaps most egregiously sliding the individual into pure solipsism. Solipsism. Envy is the ultimate focus on self. Unlike pride, envy does not reflect inflated sense of self, but instead a lack of sense of self. The envious person has an un- developed or underdeveloped sense of self causing him or her to desire what others have to fill gaps in his or her personal self.
1: Right. And, and the easiest way to understand that is in the explosion in social media and the issues that arise from that today. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that in the early 1980s, Christopher Lash wrote a best-selling book called The Culture of Narcissism. Um, and Lash has since passed away, but I often wonder what he would think about today's culture of narcissism. Uh, What he was experiencing in the early 80s doesn't hold a candle to what we're going through today. Uh, In 2006, Time Magazine named you as the person of the year. Um, It's really become a point where now we've got self-obsession in our pocket in the form of our cell phones that allows us to take selfies and constantly be updating our social media and checking out what everybody else is doing. It's a, uh, it's a problem with, with resentment and envy. Um, and a lot of folks who, who, you know, just have a, have a misperception and a mis miss, uh, they don't understand what the role of self is in existence today.
0: And, uh, As we've talked about a little earlier, you uh, write that perhaps the largest growth in the envy industry these days has been promulgated by the explosive nature of social media, that our society seems obsessed with reinvigorating the importance of solitude for reflection and edification, but is also worshiped at every turn that we will miss a notification on our phone.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's what the, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls radical reflexivity, right? He, he, he talks about this idea that we really need to stop and and reflect and slow down. We don't do that. We don't slow down. Um, you know, this, this exercise that I give to my students um, who are convinced that everything is on the Internet. And uh, as as an old book person, I'm I'm very interested in having them use print sources when they do their research and when they read. And so I send them to the library with an index card with a call number for a specific book on it. And I tell them to go look at that book and then look at all the books that are on the shelf around it. And they have to write a short paper that just kind of reflects on what they have discovered and what they found. And almost the semester doesn't go by with, um, with a, at least one student saying that they, they were really kind of stunned at the serendipity of finding things that they had never looked for, that they weren't really looking for. And that's what's missed when we spend our entire lives online, is that sense of serendipity, of discovering things mm-hmm. and being happy. You know, serendipity is about discovering something that you didn't intend to look for, but it's a good thing.
0: And you're right, living in this online world can only stoke my envy and cause bitter feelings. Perhaps those feelings are natural to human beings, but it is continued seeding and reseeding of such feelings that ultimately detract from our humanity. There we are with that once again.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's what uh, Hamlet counsels his mother in, in, in Shakespeare's play, when when he tells her not to, to continue sleeping in, in his uncle's bed, and he says, "Do not spread compost on the weeds. Um, it is just a, we're just feeding the the beast, um, feeding the, the the green goblin, if you will, which is you know often how envy is perceived."
0: Sloth. Why did you select this sin last, the last of the seven deadly sins in your book?
1: Well, mostly it was because I was probably pretty lazy. Um, (laughs) I left it for the end. Um, I I wasn't sure what to do with it. Um, In fact, as I note in the book, I wasn't writing about these in any particular prescribed order. I wasn't using any one of the Church Fathers' order in order to to write about it. I I sort of wrote about them as they they occurred to me in their importance— um, and sloth is one of the things which recently I've, I've become more interested in because um, it is particularly the sense that it originally was used, which is acedia. Um, that is how Vigris Ponticus called it, what he called it, acedia, which is kind of a mental sloth or apathy. Um, and I've described it in an online uh, blog post as, as sort of existential malaise. It's this sense that we just can't get out of bed in the morning. Um, So it's 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 not depression per se, um, but it certainly can be connected to depression. And um, it is this, you know, it's the opposite of being um, engaged and busy. Um, You know, envy and sloth almost seem antithetical. Um, Envy constantly says, "I want what you have," and sloth says, "Leave me alone." Um, and Benedict was really worried about this in his rule for the monks. Um, he cautioned the monks against being loafers, he called them. He said, idleness this is the soul's enemy. And so it was really important that we keep, remain active. So there's this kind of um, contradiction in terms, if you will. Then you know, I'm, I'm saying we need to slow down, we need to be reflective, we need to be thoughtful, but we also need to remain active. And again, it's a balance, right? I mean, so much of what I'm talking about in this book is about finding a balance.
0: And you point out that it's uh, it's not laziness. It's more indicative of existential despair. And then you yeah. have some of the characteristics uh, that market their there nine different characteristics and you identify them that several are symptoms of modern life. Uh, how many suffer... From insomnia, fatigue, distraction, and and lack of of self worth.
1: Yeah, I mean and that is certainly epidemic, um, and the, the, the what we're going through at the moment. In everybody is talking about COVID fatigue and Zoom yes. fatigue, um, and and there is a real sense now that, that we are in danger of of the of the sin of sloth. Because it just what's going on in the world is is conducive to, uh, to to letting us do that.
0: And you believe that it it can become a gateway drug for other sin.
1: It can. I mean, it it it, it not only can become a gateway drug for other sins, but it can really lead um, more dangerously for for us today to uh, real issues of depression. And, uh, and then possibly suicide and suicidal tendencies and ideation. It's, it's, it's a dangerous
0: thing. And actual physical and psychological movements seem rare. Movement implies change. Sloth implies moving. Uh, it, it implies moving forward. Sloth is the inability or desire to change.
1: Right. Right. Right, so it, it's that that, that becoming um, lazy, as, as, as you know, and I, I refer to the the, the novel, the movie goer, I walk a Percy, um, and in that novel, Bing Spauling is, is guilty of a laziness in need of spiritual salvation. Um, he can escape his laziness and be, begin a quest for the meaning of his life, um, and he he does that by escaping, going to the movies. Um, But we we see a different example in Albert Camus' novel, The Stranger, right, in which the title character, Merceau, kills an Arab on the beach in French Algiers only to defend himself by saying, essentially, the sun was in my eyes. Um, The French call that a a kind of *lennui morbide, or deadly boredom.
0: Our guest this evening has been Professor David Solomon. We've been talking about his book, The Seven Deadly Sins, how sin influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the modern area. And, of course, we just touched upon it. If you get a chance to read it, you certainly should do that uh, because you'll learn so much more. Professor, thank you so very much for being with us this evening.
1: Father Ron, thank you so much. I I, I love the show, and you're providing a tremendous service to to your listeners.
0: Thank you. Blessings on you and all your loved ones. Thank you, sir. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. So um, let, me, um, let me read um, a final passage from uh, the book. Uh, Professor writes, The last 100 years have forced us to re-examine our very existence on this planet, so much so that even the definitions of our most basic concepts are now called into question what is truth, what is life, what is sin. However, if we cease even attempting to clarify and hone our language, we will have truly given up. Therefore, it is imperative that we keep moving, motion being a sign of life and potential change. And we can never relinquish the potentiality of the species to any one or anything. As such, the pushback at the demagogues and dictators of our world cannot cease. The standard for moral behavior must be established and retained. And those who would violate that standard through acts of sin, however we might define it, we've tried to talk a little bit about that this evening, however we might define sin, might not be permitted to thrive. He writes, Carl Jung wrote, quote, It is an almost ridiculous prejudice to assume that existence can only be physical. Indeed, technology stresses the physical almost to the entire exclusion and dismissal of the spiritual. He writes, I am concerned about the effect technology has had and continues to have on our spirituality on our humanity and as a result on our notions of sin we live in a culture that is increasingly narcissistic divisive and bitter as we regress as we regress into tribalism sins such as envy and greed are magnified every group seems guilty of excessive pride all the while the individuals that make up those groups are dragged into asadia and gluttony. A culture incapable of dealing with its own sexuality too often fails, too often falls into patterns of lustful behavior that oftentimes escalates to violence and destruction. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her, pray for peace, as if it depended on you alone, and come back next Sunday and amplify with us.